Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Isaiah's Challenge to America's Militarism. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 7th, 2016. In the lectionary from Isaiah chapter 115, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Just before my wife and I walked the way of St. Francis in Italy this summer, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute published its annual report for 2015. And once again, the report shows that the United States is far and away the most militaristic country on Earth. The United States is the biggest exporter of weapons in the world. Small arms, fighter jets, tanks, missiles, and so on, accounting for about 33% of total arms sales. Lawrence Wilkerson, the former Colin Powell's chief of staff in the Bush administration, in an interview in March, six, March 2016, put it this way, We are the death merchant of the world. The American government even has a program of grants and loans called foreign military financing to help countries buy our weapons. Seven of the top ten arms manufacturers in the world are American companies like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon. Such is the lucrative marriage between the military and the arms industry. War profiteering is very good and very big business for these companies. The United States is also the biggest military spender $596 billion in 2015, which was about 36% of total global spending, and almost three times as much as second place China, which spent $215 billion. In fact, in 2015, the United States spent as much on its military as the next eight countries combined. We're also the biggest military occupier, with half a million soldiers and dependents on a thousand bases in 175 countries around the world. That does not include numerous secret and officially non-existent bases, or the tens of thousands of private contractors that do the bidding of the Department of Defense. Our own country is home to about a thousand separate bases in all 50 states. And finally, the United States is the biggest regime changer in the world. In his book called Overthrow, Stephen Kinzer examines the 14 times in the last century that the United States has toppled foreign governments. Specialists will debate the complex nuances of outright coups, covert activities, mixed motives, and historical consequences, but by giving us the big picture, Kinzer reminds us that America's geopolitics are hardly benign or altruistic. No nation in modern history, writes Kinzer, has done this so often, in so many places, so far from its own shores.
Many Americans find facts and figures like these reassuring and even a source of patriotic pride. Politicians promise to make the American military even greater and stronger. We justify our militarism in many ways, most notably with comforting myths about America's benevolent intentions, exceptionalism, the glorification of war, and through government disinformation. Many critics, like Andrew Basevich, though, have become convinced that our American militarism is not only broken, but wrong. Basevich has called our militarism stupendously profligate in terms of blood and money. Sooner or later, our permanent war economy will lead to our financial ruin. Our military idolatry, he believes, is now so comprehensive and beguiling that it pervades our national consciousness and perverts our national policies. We've normalized war, romanticized military life that formerly was deemed degrading and inhuman, measured our national greatness in terms of military superiority, and harbor naive, unlimited expectations about how waging war, long considered a tragic last resort that signaled failure, can further our national self-interests. Others point to the glaring hypocrisy of talk about domestic democracy and actions that promote foreign imperialism. Our invasion of Iraq has proven once again the idea of blowback or the predictable but unintended consequences of war. Invading other countries has almost always radicalized extremist groups, fanned the flames of nationalism, and fomented anti-Americanism that has destabilized countries rather than strengthened them. There are also the opportunity costs of militarism, that is, the potential civilian use of resources for things like health and education that have otherwise been lost to military violence. Walking the way of St. Francis earlier this summer was so good in so many ways one of which was that it helped me to see our nation as other people do, and to think beyond the drumbeat of self-justifications that you hear at home. Christians in particular worship the Prince of Peace, who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, and who told us to love your enemies. We believe that God loves every country as much as our own nation, and that every person bears his image as his own child. Reading the Cipri report and walking the way of St. Francis made for an uncomfortable juxtaposition. It made me think of the famous peace prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, which for a while my wife and I had taped above our kitchen sink. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. 
O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. We don't know the author of this classic prayer, and it was not until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to St. Francis. By one account, the prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis. But it certainly emulates his longing to be an instrument of peace, reconciliation, and redemption in our violent world. And for that, reminder, I remain very grateful. For books this week, <clears throat> we review a book by Bruce Gordon. The title of the book, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, a biography, Lives of Great Religious Book Series, Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2016, 277 pages. This is a guest book review by Don Thorson, Professor of Theology, Chair of the Department of Theology and Ethics, and Director, Master of Divinity Program at Azusa Pacific University. Bruce Gordon, Professor at Yale, has written an informative and appreciative biography of John Calvin's theological magnum opus, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Few books have had greater impact upon Protestant Christianity. Written first in 1536, Calvin revised the Institutes more than 20 times until its final Latin publication in 1559. Thereafter, Christians, especially in the Reformed tradition of Protestant Christianity, have been influenced by Calvin's beliefs in the sovereignty of God, salvation by grace through faith, and the primacy of Scripture. Gordon discusses how the Institutes emerged historically in the midst of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. He also talks about how the Institutes influenced the development of Protestantism in both Europe in America. For example, the Dutch most strongly promoted Calvin's theology, not shying away from the implications of the sovereignty of God, including the belief in so-called double predestination. Gordon writes, from 1539 Calvin emphatically insisted that God predestined the elect to life and the reprobate to death a position that separated him from his friend Philip Melanchthon and Heinrich Bullinger, who objected to the second part of the equation. Of course, from Calvin's perspective, double predestination was a pastoral doctrine that brought the comfort of assurance to the people and explained the problem of evil by placing the wisdom of God beyond all human understanding. In America, the Institutes were influential, influential in multiple ways. Calvin impacted Christian movements such as Puritanism 
and leaders such as Jonathan Edwards. Gordon notes how Brian Bateman argued that there that three Calvins actually emerged in 19th century America. First, the intolerant murderer of Servetus, second, the great hero of the Reformation, and then the pioneer of religious freedom. With regard to the first view, Gordon does not shy away from long-standing criticisms of Calvin as being religiously and magisterially intolerant epitomized by his collusion in executing Michael Servetus for heresy. In 1553, Servetus was burned at the stake for his denial of the Trinity and infant baptism, along with copies of Servetus's books attached to his legs. Gordon focuses more upon Calvin as the hero of the Reformation and upon the influence of the institutes around the world. For example, he explains the impact of Calvin upon Karl Barth and how both men then influenced the liberation theological writings of Alan Bozak in South Africa and also reformed Christianity in China. Bozak especially found Barth's resistance against Nazism by the Confessing Church with its Barman Declaration in 1934 inspirational in repelling centuries of slavery and apartheid practices in South Africa which had been condoned by the Dutch Reformed Church. In his conclusion, Gordon writes, a book about Calvin's book will necessarily overemphasize the singularity of the Institutes, but there is no doubt that it remains the best-known theological work of the Protestant Reformation. I agree that, regardless of one's theology, we cannot understand what it means to be Protestant and how Protestantism has impacted the world without studying, understanding, and interacting with the Institutes of John Calvin. Once again, the author is Bruce Gordon of Yale Divinity School, and the title of the book, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, a biography. For movies this week, we review a blast from the past. It's called Taxi Driver from 1976. This year, 2016, marks the 40th anniversary of the cult classic by writer Paul Schrader and director Martin Scorsese. When the movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1976, it won the award for Best Picture, and since then it has been routinely listed as one of the greatest films ever made. A very young Robert De Niro plays a Vietnam Marine veteran named Travis Bickle, an insomniac who drives a taxi in New York City from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. We didn't have the medical categories back then, but today we would say he suffers from post-traumatic stress syndrome. He still wears his military fatigues. He's a mis misanthropic loner who's disgusted at the urban decay he observes every night. Porn shops, pimps, peep shows, drugs, and gangs. He wishes for a real rain that would, quote, wipe all this scum off the earth. End quote. He's obsessed with a girl he can never have, Betsy, played by Sybil Shepherd, 
who, he says, appeared like an angel out of this filthy mess. Frustrated with that failure at a human connection, he then tries to save a 12-year-old prostitute named Iris, famously played by Jodie Foster, with his vigilante justice. Bickle is a ticking time bomb. He says, I just want to go out and really do something. I got some bad ideas in my head. The musical score, observes one critic, is a presentiment of catastrophe. A new mohawk haircut symbolizes his character development. The most famous line in the movie has even passed over into popular culture. You talking to me? Even 40 years later, Taxi Driver raises important questions about human alienation, loneliness, and violence through its sordid realism. Is Travis Bickle a hero or a villain? The movie is Taxi Driver from 1976. For poetry, we continue our series of poems by Edwina Gately. And this week, one of my all-time favorite poems, Let Your God Love You. Be silent. Be still. Alone. Empty before your God. Say nothing. Ask nothing. Be silent. Be still. Let your God look upon you. That is all. God knows. God understands. God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet. Still. Be. Let your God love you. Poetry by Edwina Gately. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 7th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.